there have always been people in Congress who understood the complexity of what we have to do. There have, until recently, been very few who recognize the urgency with which we have to act. And if we transition from a world that says this problem is too complicated to move quickly to one that says this problem is too urgent to worry about complexity, we will have gained nothing. If you're following political news, then you've probably heard about The Squad, a group of four newly elected congresswomen advocating for progressive policies like the Green New Deal. But what about the New Democrat Coalition? This group of Democrats also has some big plans for dealing with climate change. And in this episode, we hear from one lawmaker who's leading that charge. Welcome to Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. I'm Julia Piper, contributing editor with Green Tech Media and a senior fellow with the Atlantic Council. If you've been listening to this show for a while, you may remember that we covered Sean Caston's campaign last fall. It was one of the most overtly pro-climate action campaigns of the 2018 midterms, being run in a historically Republican district. This facility is on the leading edge of clean energy, but Donald Trump doesn't think we need it because he thinks climate change is a hoax. I'm Sean Caston. I'm a scientist and a clean- In the end, Caston, a biochemical engineer and clean energy entrepreneur, beat out six-term Republican Congressman Peter Roskam. Prior to joining Congress, Caston co-founded Recycled Energy Development, which focused on reducing greenhouse gas emissions by capturing and recycling wasted energy. Caston's race in Illinois' 6th District was identified as a 2018 battleground that could have determined whether or not Democrats took control of the House. And it's a moderate suburban district that Democrats will want to keep. As a testament to where his voters stand, upon joining Congress, Kasten became a member of the New Democrat Coalition, a group of more than 100 Democrats committed to pro-economic growth, pro-innovation, and fiscally responsible policies. Kasten currently serves as co-chair of the New Democrat Coalition Climate Change Task Force. He's also a member of the House Select Committee on the Climate Crisis. As you'll hear in this interview, he's intent on finding solutions to climate change and doesn't shy away from getting wonky on topics like attracting capital to the solar sector. But he also has a strong perspective on how to tackle the climate crisis and a critical view of some of the policies his fellow Democrats have put forward. I sat down with Representative Kasten several weeks ago at the Atlantic Council's Veterans and Advanced Energy Summit in his home state of Illinois. I started by asking Kasten about his work in the advanced energy industry. Here's what he had to say. So I have a background in energy. Whether you'd say it's advanced, we can decide. But so I, uh, undergrad in biochemistry, um, became really, really concerned about climate change as the arguably the highest ratio of things we should be dealing with divided by what we're doing about it, of just about anything out there. And so I went back to graduate school, got a master's in biochemical engineering, was working on developing cellulosic biofuels. I thought that was going to be my thing. My uh, first job out of school was with a technology consulting company who heard I had a biochemical engineering degree. They said, chemical? I said, biochemical. They said, yeah, that's what we said. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so I worked as a chemical engineer working on fuel cell technologies and, and microturbines and battery chemistries. And gradually came to appreciate that there were about half of our clients were people who had needed help developing their technology to get it ready to market. 
And half of our clients were people who had totally mature, totally proven, totally economic technologies and couldn't figure out how to sell them. And I sort Which of... Which one were you more intrigued by? Well, it, the they were both interesting in their own right. But I, in, I had this voice in my head saying, am I really solving the pacing problem if you bring these technologies out and people can't figure out how to sell them? Because the reason they couldn't sell them were they were a similar set of reasons. You know, you need a permission slip from the utility every time you interconnect to their grid. How do you get that permission slip, no matter how sexy the technology is, if you're a threat to their revenue, um, and so on and so on. So so I left. I got the entrepreneurial bug, spent 16 years as the CEO of a couple different companies that had a mission to profitably reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Our theory was that if we could make money by lowering CO2 with totally proven technologies, which is why I say maybe not advanced, then maybe people would copy us. Because if you're going to make a difference of the scale that needs to be made, you're going to need a lot of people working on this. And we we built 80 projects, deployed a couple hundred million dollars. I was enjoying my enjoying being a CEO. I wasn't looking to change careers, but for reasons having to do with some of our capital providers, we sold our company in September 16. And then Trump happened, and I thought, you know what? When when we've basically proven that there are no economic and thermodynamic laws against lowering CO2 profitably. And we keep running into U.S. laws that get in the way of doing this. Let's take some optimism in the fact that of those three classes of laws, only one of them can be changed. <laughs> <laughs> so you went to Congress, or yes. you know you ran and you obviously won. And so you have made climate change a center part of your platform. What are the solutions that you see gaining traction today. We hear a lot about the Green New Deal from your party, the Democratic Party, the progressive wing really championing that. And I think a lot of people would say that that has raised climate change on the policy sphere to a very high level. But I know you've also been critical of that particular approach. So tell us how you think about going after this issue. Well, so we have a tremendous opportunity to lower CO2 emissions, make our economy more attractive, make our businesses more competitive. And I know that because you can look at a lot of our trading partners who use vastly less energy than we do per dollar of GDP. Not fossil energy, total energy. And that says to me, I think objectively, I'm fairly confident that we could cut our energy use per dollar of GDP by probably 50% without creating any economic pain. And again, every pro project I ever built was with proven technology that was all at least twice as efficient as the US power grid. Well, quickly so, on that, how would you do that? What would be that way? Well, so here's now the, the question, this is why it feeds into the Green New Deal. Understanding why we haven't done what is in our economic interest is a really complicated conversation. And we could use the rest of this podcast talking about it, but, but at core it's because we have transitioned from an economy where the incentives were to extract energy as quickly as possible, and we're gradually becoming an economy that recognizes that we create economic value by using as little energy per dollar of GDP as possible. We're not quite there yet. Mm -hmm. I, a lot of the regulatory incentives are designed to incentivize the world we used to live in rather than the world we're in now. Japan, that has no natural resources, had an incentive to create fuel, really fuel-efficient vehicles. Saudi Arabia did not. There's a reason why the Toyota Prius was invented in Japan and not in Saudi Arabia. We're a little bit in between that, and we got some opportunities there. I mention that in the context of the Green New Deal because there have always been people in Congress who understood the complexity of what we have to do. There have, until recently, been very few who recognize the urgency with which we have to act. And if we transition from a world that says this problem is too complicated to move quickly to one that says this problem is too urgent to worry about complexity, we will have gained nothing. 
we have to recognize the urgency and we have to recognize the complexity. We have to sail into, you know, how to remove some of these, you know, things that might have incentivized the right thing once but are now barriers to what we need to become. Just because the Green New Deal is so topical right now, I guess to push on that, I think some people would say it's not really fleshed out yet. They are still deciding what exactly the Green New Deal will be. It's a resolution. So do you see any potential hope for the Green New Deal being a good catalyst for action if it's fleshed out and includes some of the detail you're talking about? Well, look, at, at some point, um, y- you know, we can either flesh this out and put it under the headline of the Green New Deal or we can just do the right policies. And if people want to put this under a rubric, okay, fine. I don't really care what you call this stuff, but let's get it done. Mm-hmm. The... Um, I mean, the Green New Deal at core is really more New Deal than green. You know, there's a lot more, you know, economic wealth redistribution issues. Um, So let's do the green stuff well. And if people want to use this, that's fine. But there's a whole lot of things we can do because we know that we have so many opportunities to lower our CO2 emissions and make money. Because we know that we have all these barriers that have incentivized the wrong things historically. That's an opportunity. So let's go write the rules that can get those changed. So you are part of the New Democrat Coalition. It is a more centrist group of Democratic lawmakers, and you just put out a climate plan, a climate set of principles anyway. Tell us a little bit more what's in that. What is the approach that the New, that the new Democrat Coalition takes? Well, so number one, we, we absolutely sail into the urgency. We have got to get to zero carbon as quickly as possible. If we got to zero carbon yesterday, we already have two feet of sea level rise baked in. So you want to get there by 2030, you want to get there by 2050, as fast as possible. So that's number one. Number two, we, I think we have a tremendous amount of respect for the value that competitive markets have in allocating capital, but we have to make sure that the incentives are aligned the right way. Just because you're a for-profit business doesn't make you moral or amoral. It makes you for-profit. So how do we make sure that those incentives are aligned? So let's focus on making sure that we, we have a set of energy policies that lead us towards the win-win outcome. Um, that are technology agnostic because we need to get to we need to get to zero CO2. How we get there, that's that's for markets to figure out. And we need to be very clear about what the goal is and incentivize that goal rather than the particular path we use to get there. And I think if we have that as a principle, we will we'll get a lot of things done and we will get them done in a way that will will lower the CO2 as quick as possible because we have finite dollars. And if we don't deploy the lowest cost stuff first, we're going to run out of money before we get to where we have to get to. So just for purposes of clarification, how is this different from the Green New Deal, obviously, on the on the energy part and climate piece? Because you both talk well, about, you know, workforce training, both talk about reducing emissions uh, to zero, net zero by 50, 2050. Well, so I think the biggest difference is do you think the transition to a clean energy economy is going to be a source of pain or gain? If you think it's going to be a source of pain, then you spend most of your bandwidth figuring out how to equitably allocate that pain through society. I would argue that that's largely what the Green New Deal is doing. How do we make sure that, you know, impoverished communities get some of the benefit? How do we make sure that these costs are borne by the appropriate? Do do we penalize historic sources of emission? There's there's very much an allocation of pain that's innate to that. If we recognize that we have the opportunity to dramatically lower our cost of energy and lower CO2, then we have a completely different set of problems. How do you allocate the gain? I'll give you an example. In the, in the last 15 years, as we have deployed renewable energy into the grid, the price of power has fallen by 6% and the CO2 emissions per megawatt hour have fallen by 26%. That's because 
you know, and this is complicated, so I'm going to explain so your listeners can understand. No one with a solar panel on their roof ever wakes up in the morning and says, I better check the price of electricity to see if I should run my solar panel today. Every single person with a coal plant or a gas plant or an oil plant looks every day to say, does it make economic sense to me? The result is that you've got all of this zero marginal cost generation, which is driving down the price of power. Consumers are benefiting from that. The environment is benefiting from that. However, the price of power is falling faster than the cost of construction of new solar plants, which means that you can see a point coming where we are not going to be able to attract the capital to give investors the return they want because you know, you could kind of bank on the grid being $70 a megawatt hour on average 10 years ago, then 60, then 50. Now you're lucky to get 30. So how do we, that's, that's a tremendous amount of gain. Consumers have gotten a huge benefit from that. How do we allocate that gain in a way that makes sure that we continue to compensate the people who are bringing these technologies forward while still making sure that consumers get a benefit? That is an awesome problem to have, but it is a totally different problem than the one that we're talking about. So in that case, how do you allocate the gain? And you're talking about how do you compensate the folks in the solar industry accurately? How, How do we make sure that we keep bringing that capital forward? The challenge we have to lower CO2 emissions is not making sure that there's an incentive to run the solar panel. It is going to run as long as the sun is shining. The challenge we have is how do you deploy the capital to build the solar panel in the first place? That's equally true for the electric vehicle owner. Once you own a Tesla, you don't sit there and say, eh, the price of gasoline is low, I'm not going to drive it today, right? But how do, you get, how do you get the person to own that Tesla or get the charging station in the right place, you know, solve those logistics? And so, you know, as an example, this, you know, one of these bills that I've, I'm in the process of finalizing would capitalize on some work the Air Force did where they recognized that there is a strategic value in having clean energy in and around the vicinity of, of Air Force bases that are providing the power to, the, to drone pilot operators that are running drones overseas, and that that's actually the strategic vulnerability of the grid. Well, everybody who built a clean energy power plant around those naval bases, number one, made, the, made, the, made those bases more resilient, reliable, and improved our strategic footprint in the globe. Number two, every one of those developers got an offtake agreement with a AAA credit offtaker in the Department of Defense. Well, let's expand that and go out to other bases. Let's bring those things forward so that now, whatever the price of power is, you could go in and say, well... DOD needs to build these. It makes strategic sense to build them. Let me use them as a purchaser and therefore lower my, 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 my cost of borrowing um, so that I can build these quicker. And society will benefit, but that's an allocate the gain kind of conversation. You are able to talk about these issues in much more uh, detail and with so much more eloquence than I think almost perhaps any other lawmaker out there. Um, Because I think you come from the industry, uh, what do you think about the policy piece of this? When you talk about these issues, do you find your colleagues on Capitol Hill understand it? Are you, you know, kind of speaking into an empty room? What is the reception that you're seeing? Um, So one of the one of the best pieces of advice I got when I came to Congress um, uh, Jamie Raskin, congressman from Maryland, made the comment to me that he said, he said, this is a job where the, all of the incentives are to become very broad very quickly. You know, you got you to gotta vote on disaster relief one day. You're voting on criminal justice the next day. You're voting on health care the next day. You got to know enough about all those things. But there's very little time to get, get any depth. And he said, if you want to figure out how to do something effectively in Congress, ask people why they ran. Because if you know why they ran, you know where their depth is. And then as you're working on a particular issue, you can say, okay, you ran on immigration policy. If I get an immigration question, I'm going to ask you because you probably understand all the details. 
And I find that that's not only true, but that a lot of members of Congress actually share that view. And so, you know, having run on this issue, um, you know, the fact that I'm on the Select Committee on Climate, the fact that I'm, you know, chairing the New Dem Task Force is, you know, is a recognition among my colleagues that, you know, seniority is important in Washington, but it's not the only thing. Expertise is actually kind of valuable, too. So so that's pretty neat. Um, and I'm encouraged by it because, you know, most members of Congress have got their egos in check and, and recognize that let's get the right people in the room. The piece that is a little bit depressing is that the you'd be hard-pressed to find people who ran for Congress on climate until this cycle. Yeah. And, I, and I wish... I wish there was. I wish there were more people who had that vertical of depth um, in the body, um, because we need we need a lot of people rowing in this direction. Well, it has become an issue in this upcoming election in a way that I think we probably haven't ever seen before. Protests outside the Democratic debates, calling for more airtime for this issue. So that is interesting to see. Uh, I think it also does potentially lead to some conflict within the Democratic Party about what we're talking about, how fast or slow to go. Um, so. We talked a little bit about that. I guess I'm curious, though, do you find that trying to find these center positions or policies, things that are more tactical, and correct me if center is not the right word here, but it feels like they could be vulnerable to criticism that you're never going to get anyone on the other side of the aisle to join you, and it's not ambitious enough for progressive members of your own party to be uh, satisfied. So does it kind of end up being a lonely place there? Uh, I, 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 don't, I wouldn't say it's lonely. Um, I would maybe say, we're just not hearing enough about it. Well, I, I guess number one, um, the saying that you believe in climate change and that you understand that we have increased our CO2 emissions as a species more in the last hundred years than we had in the last interglacial does not in any way qualify for you for respect. That is a statement of fact. Nobody respects anybody who says, you know what, I've decided today that, that I agree with the first two laws of thermodynamics, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you please agree with all three if you'd like, but that is not a basis for respect. And it is unfortunately, you know, I think if we allow any politicians to say, I accept the science of man-made climate change and we need to find a way to act on it, you don't get a cookie for that. Because if you understand it, you will recognize that we are darn near out of time and we have to move really quickly. But you have to also understand that not only our entire modern economy, but, but arguably our ability to sustain as many mouths as we have on this planet depends irreducibly on access to energy. Before the invention of the steam engine, the population was a lot smaller and you, your access to energy depended on your access to land because you had to have mules and horses. And I mean, there was a reason we were an agricultural economy before we had access to energy. That's not who we are anymore. But we have to make sure that that recognition of the urgency of the problem also recognizes how critically dependent it is that we still have access to cold beers and warm showers. Yeah. Be hard to imagine America without without those, um, <laughs> the revolt. Um, okay, let's get into some of the specifics that you have put out there. Some specific policies. I know there's there's two that are particularly interesting. You already mentioned an Air Force base uh, piece of legislation that's coming out. You also have one on on energy storage. So let's start there. Tell us about the Promoting Grid Storage Act. So this came about and it, it sails right into what we were talking about about past Trump goals and being technology agnostic. There are a lot of states, 
and indeed a lot of federal conversation framed around let's get to 100% renewable as quickly as we can. The, the, the presumption, which is wrong, is that 100% renewable is a, is a synonym for 100% or 0% CO2 emissions. And those things are actually not synonymous. And we've seen in the, in the, in the, the really rapid deployment of renewable energy significant parts of the grid, including the Midwest, where we're now increasing CO2 emissions because we are deploying so much clean energy, because those intermittent renewables, in order to make sure that we maintain voltage stability on the grid and reliable power, are increasingly being stapled to very inefficient gas engines running at half load that can quickly ramp up or ramp down when the wind starts blowing or stops blowing, when the sun goes down. You, you get the idea. And solving that will require either that we you know, number one, slow the deployment of renewables, which I don't think we want. Number two, <clears throat> um, build a lot more gas engines, which we don't want. Number three, build a ton of transmission to get the power from where it's generated to where the load is, which has, which we probably should do, but that has some real NIMBY problems. Or number three, number four, um, that we build a whole lot of energy storage so that as there's, when we're at a point where there's more wind and sun than we have load, we charge the battery, pump water to the top of the hill, fill a compressed air cavern, whatever we do. And then as we get into a trough, we pull out of there. Well, that means the deployment of a lot of energy. So what this, what our Grid Storage Act would do would provide a billion dollars to go out and deploy storage throughout the, throughout the grid where it's needed. That's a start. That's not enough. But essentially to make sure that we can, we can capitalize on all this opportunity and lower CO2 emissions. And I know you also have a bill out there for tackling industrial emissions. Tell us a little bit about that. So I'd, I'd said a moment ago that I think we can cut our CO2 emissions by 50% and still grow the economy. How do you get the next 50%? Because we got to get to zero. And what's really hard about that is that there are sectors of the economy that use fossil fuel as a chemical input, and we have no idea how to decarbonize them. We, Things like the, fertilizer. Yeah, you know, that the Haber-Bosch process that was invented to take natural gas, combine it with nitrogen, and make ammonia fertilizer. We're feeding the planet because of that. How do you do that without natural gas? How do you make steel without petroleum coke, um, plastics? Um, we need to solve those problems, and we don't, have a, we don't have a single federal agency that's looking at that. So the idea of this bill would be to stand up an agency within the Department of Energy that is specifically tasked with doing the research to figuring out how to decarbonize those hard-to-decarbonize sectors. And both of these bills have bipartisan support, yeah, correct? Yeah, yeah, they do. And bicameral. So we have, we have both of those bills have sponsors in the Senate as well. So when you look at the landscape of clean energy and climate policy solutions, do you feel like you're seeing a good, honest broker on the other side of the aisle. Do you think that there are any Republicans stepping up to engage on this? We are seeing more. We're seeing more news articles about Republican engagement on climate. I think the Green New Deal uh, has at least, you know, energized that conversation. But when it comes to the nuts and bolts, are you finding a good, you know, ally there? So one of the one of the really great things that the Green New Deal and all the youth activism has done has created a situation where uh, if an elected official stands up and says climate change isn't real, they get all the respect they deserve. We are long overdue for that moment, but we've reached that point, and that's, that's good. The, I wish I could say that the leadership of the Republican Party was committed to action. 
but so far they really aren't. Um, and, you know, are there individual members at a junior level who you talk to and say, is this an issue? Yeah, yeah, there is. But uh, for every member across the aisle who has led off their testimony by saying, I accept the science of man-made climate change and it's critical that we act, they then say, but, and sometimes the but is China has to ask first, sometimes the but is, you know, how to allocate the pain and the way we were talking before. There's always a but as an excuse for inaction, which to my mind says they have not been told to act. I mean, name the last climate bill that had a Republican lead sponsor. I don't say that to be partisan. That makes me really, really sad and scared. But it does mean that bipartisanship is not the metric for whether or not we are going to have successful climate policy. Having a majority of the votes in the House and the Senate and a president who believes in climate change just as strongly as he or she believes in gravity is going to be the key to getting this done. I don't care what party they come from, but that has to trump bipartisanship. I guess I'm curious if you were to say, you know, what do you think would get more Republicans engaged on this? You know, do you think it's something like Fox News needs to cover it more? One of my co-hosts talks about that. If, if just the media on the right maybe gave lawmakers a little more cover, they would engage. Or is it about fossil fuel money? You know, I'm curious what you think. Well, so this is an entirely political answer. The, there's some great analysis that's been done by the Leadership Now Project. It's a group out of a, a bunch of Harvard Business School grads who are trying to sort of use their use their HBS minds to, to figure out how to fix politics. And they did this analysis where they looked at all of the outside money that gets spent to elect politicians. In the 2016 cycle, does not direct contributions to candidates. This is the people who run ads on TV, um, you know, independent of you. There was, in the 2016 cycle, there was about 540 million spent by outside Democratic groups and about 720 million spent by outside Republican groups. The the Democratic groups um, covered a huge range of issue areas. I think environment was one of the biggest ones, and Sierra Club was one of the biggest players in that space. But it was a fraction of the total. You know, there were, you know, labor groups and, you know, various minority interest groups. Um, you know, you can go on down the list of typical, you know, the, you know, Planned Parenthood, pro-choice, those sorts of groups. No one dominant group. No, as an issue, no issue that controlled more than, more than twenty percent or so of the total money. On the other side of the aisle, almost 60% of the money that was spent was from the NRA. And of the balance, almost half was from Americans for Prosperity and other sort of Koch Brothers funded groups. And the result of that practically is that if you want to win an election as a Democrat, you're gonna have to appeal to a whole bunch of people and you can run as a, you can run on an environment platform, you can run on a pro-choice platform, you know, but you've gotta appease those other groups in some fashion or understand them. If you want to run when there's only really two groups, you have to be obedient. That's what, that's what the hiring process demands. And if we don't get more of a diversity of interests electing Republicans, we have this wildly different process where one side selects for empathy and intelligence and the other side selects for obedience. There ain't no NRA money flowing to Democratic candidates. And there ain't no environmental money flowing to Republican candidates. And this shouldn't be about money. I'm not suggesting that it, that it should be. And, and I also think that money doesn't, doesn't corrupt people. I think money flows to people who agree with them. <laughs> right? the, the NRA hasn't given me money. If, if they were, they would think I was corruptible. <laughs> but, but that process is a real problem. And I think, unfortunately, you know, there's good people in the Republican Party, but they, you look at Justin Amash, 
to, to be disobedient is to be excommunicated. Look at the Democratic Party. You know, you know, AOC can have a spat with Nancy Pelosi and, you know, and Ilhan Omar can alienate some of our, you know, our Jewish colleagues. And we grapple with all that publicly. Um, but they're all still in the party. Yeah, there's a lot there that I would love to pick into. I mean, one just comment is that uh, last year we were talking about the midterms and our Republican colleague on the show was saying we need more environmental money going to Republicans or else they don't engage on the issue. They're not really aware. They're not informed. And so he was kind of calling on the environmental community to to get engaged there. Which See, is, but I think that's exactly backwards. Yeah. Go on. I'm the, super curious. Yeah. The environmental community did not give me money to change my opinion. They supported me because they knew this is my issue. The, the NRA doesn't give me money because they think I'll suddenly support give, putting a gun in every home. They know that I'm not a supporter for their issue, and, and they don't give money to people who don't support their issues. If you want to attract support from those other interest groups, you've got to care about the stuff they care about. And I, I think that is both a much more noble view of politics than we normally have and a much darker one. Because when you look and say, why are these people, you know, voting against all these things that matter to me? It's because that's what they believe. They don't care. Well, if, if their issues are at odds with yours, it's because they disagree with you. It's not because they've been bought off. And then, you know, you mentioned how there is some conflict within the Democratic Party on various political issues. I'm just curious, with the 2020 election coming up, there is a tension around whether the Democratic Party should swing left, go more moderate. Uh, that speaks to your I think your background working with the New Democrat Coalition and them being a more moderate group. So if you can, I'm, I'm curious how you think that this will play out in 2020. Which way is the party going to go? And is this, is this a problem for Democrats? Well, I guess, you know, first I want to assure you and your, your listeners that there is there is no room that people sit in to craft the master strategy of the Democratic Party. <laughs> I think we can tell that. <laughs> um, I actually think it's sort of a beautiful thing, right? I mean, y you know, Flashback to your old schoolhouse rock videos, right? I'm we, just a we, Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sing us with us. Sing with us now. Yeah. Um, we elect people to Congress because we expect them to advocate for things that are important to them, to advocate for their districts, to argue passionately for that, to push for those policies, and ultimately figure out a way to come to some kind of respect, respectful consensus with their colleagues about what to get done. That is a beautiful thing. And... I wish that when the media saw the members of the Democratic caucus advocating really strongly for a progressive issue or a centrist issue, you know, we, we have pro-life members of our caucus. We have, you know, we have members of our caucus who are, you know, are not really into gun control. We, are, we all treat each other with respect, right? And we all work through that. That's a, that's a beautiful thing. Tell that story instead of saying Dems in disarray. And when you see across the aisle people who vote in lockstep and are deeply obedient and staying on message, that's not a cause for praise. Because what that means is there's no independence. So tell us about the New Democrat Coalition. What is it? We don't hear about it all that often in the news. Yeah, so, the, so the, we should hear a lot more about the New Democrat Coalition because it is the single largest caucus in the House. You cannot get a bill through unless you have the support of the New Democrat Coalition. We have 102 members. It was founded either... 10 or 12 years ago. And, you know, historically, the, the Progressive Caucus, which is sort of the farther politically left group of Democrats, has always been the dominant bloc in the Democratic Caucus. And there were the Blue Dogs, which still exist, which was sort of the place to be if you were, you know, if you were a pro-life 
Democrat, where'd you live? Um, and the Blue Dogs was the place that is sort of more more to the right on social issues, but on, on economic issues, you know, tended to align more with the progressives. The New Dems, to some degree, is kind of the, the inverse of that. It's the place where you have a lot of pro-market people, a lot of people who have, you know, business experience like myself. Um, socially, we, we're kind of all over the map, but we probably skew more to the left than the right. And the, you know, when we flipped the House last cycle, two members, two of the 65 new Democratic freshmen um, were elected by running to the left of incumbent Democrats and winning in the primary and then carrying the seat, AOC and Diana Presley. 35 of us flipped Republican districts. The balance, you know, we're replacing retirements. So if you look at where the where the weight of the Democratic caucus is, it's overwhelmingly dominated by people who live in swing, swing districts um, and and are representing people who are really turned off by by you know the racism and misogyny and homophobia and anti-immigrant policies coming out of the Trump White House. But at the same time think it's important for us to be fiscally responsible and for us to use markets and that businesses are not things to be demonized but ways to achieve efficiently allocate capital. And for the first time now, I think there are 92 members of the Progressive Caucus and 103 members of the New Dems. So this is this is where the balance of the power sits in the House of Representatives, and it's that's kind of a it's it's not a great soundbitey story because it's it's much easier if you can say, look, there's Steve King and AOC as the as the you know the extremes of both parties. In reality, a representative Democrat um, has values that are much closer to where you know where folks like me sit. I guess, would, would you say it's accurate to say that it's just not getting enough airtime, these middle, um, more free market, yeah, I guess more market-oriented, less politicized solutions? Are they just not getting enough airtime? Is that fair to say? Well, there's probably a rich conversation about why it is that we boil everything down to black and white, right? You, you know, you can, it, it is possible to, you know, have, you know, be centrist on economic issues and far left on on issues around gay marriage and and you know and somewhere off on some totally different axis on Chinese trade policy, right? <laughs> the these are was it uh, was it was it Walt Whitman? I contain multitudes. <laughs> you know? We don't process um, multitudes all that, that well. I know, I know, but it's you know we st- we still are. Um, and it, you know, I guess my my request for all your listeners is, it's really not that hard to understand Congress and what goes on politically if you simply assume that it looks like your office. There's people with a broad diversity of opinions on every topic. Getting the right thing done requires getting people together who agree with you. We're all essentially middle managers in an 8,000-person organization. we got 435 members, and we've all got about 20 staff. Um, it's just like getting things done in your office um, with all the, you know, all the complexities and trade-offs and messiness that goes with that. Um, and when we describe this as you are black and I am white, we have lost all the nuance. And you would never do that in your office. So don't, don't do it in Congress and question any political journalist who decides that they're going to simplify all this in a way that, because I don't think you can understand the nuance, even though you probably understand all that nuance in your own place of work or in your own family. Sure. I just think of my own office, which is my home office. So I have none of those considerations. Um, it's good to be the king. Right. <laughs> um, the last thing I want to ask you about is the role of the United States on the international playing field, and specifically when it comes to climate policy and leading on clean energy policy. So 
I know that the new Democrat coalition calls for getting back in the Paris Agreement. We've seen through the Democratic debates that, you know, a lot of Democrats think that's not enough. So what is your view on U.S. leadership? Is Paris enough or what comes next? Well, I would say on a whole host of issues, the world is at its best when the U.S. is in a position of leadership. We are the single best advocate for our values that the world has ever known. We are not perfect, but as far as, you know, at what point in history has there ever been, you know, a country that was the, you know, the, the sole superpower of the world that was not expansionist, that advocated for values, that advocated for democracy, that advocated for equal treatment. And when we step back from the world stage, which is essentially what the, you know, the, the Trump administration and the Steve Bannons and, um, you know, the, the people around him who are sort of hostile to international engagement have done, the, that doesn't mean that there is no leadership in the world. It means that people who don't share our values step into a leadership role. And, you know, we saw that when we failed to ratify Kyoto, we saw all the leadership on carbon move to Brussels and London um, with the people who are doing that. As we have stepped out of Paris, the only country in the world that stepped out of Paris, Yemen, is a member of the Paris Climate Accord. As we have stepped out of that, the leadership falls to people like China. And if we want to live in a world led by the Chinese, then stay on the track we're on. But we need to get back into the Paris Climate Accord because we have to get the CO2 down. We also need to get back in the Paris Climate Accord because this is going to be the defining issue. Nobody is going to judge us in the future by whether or not we've successfully parried somebody calling us a socialist. They're going to judge us by, did we leave a better planet than the one we were born onto? And we have an opportunity to lead in that role. We currently have not demonstrated the, the ability to do that. But I think we can, we can hopefully get some, some adults back in power in the next election in all branches of the government and play the kind of leadership role that we've proven ourselves very capable of doing. Now, we have already had a degree of temperature rise. We have already lifted by 100 parts per million, and there's a lag. It's going to keep on coming. But if that doesn't scare the bejesus out of you, you do not understand the scale of the problem. Well, I think we'll have to end it on that note. (laughs) (laughs) Congressman, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's my pleasure. And that's our show for this week. Thanks so much for listening. As always, remember to subscribe to Political Climate on your favorite podcasting platform. We're on pretty much all of them, including Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Brandon and Shane will be back next week with a review of the latest climate news, so be sure to tune in. But for now, so long.